0: Gina. Hey Angie. Gina it's that time of year again that special time of year very special for you I know with your expertise in all things horror
1: it's Halloween. That's right Angie and there's spooky stuff everywhere. I'm carving pumpkins and roasting pumpkin seeds over here and thinking about ghost stories and what better time to bring our listeners some Spooky, well, not th- they're not all spooky, but some spooky tales of
0: haunting teachers. That's right. Listeners may remember our first Teachers Who Haunt Us episode, when we gathered around the campfire with a few dear teacher friends and told stories all about the teachers we've had who have stuck with us, who've haunted us in good ways and maybe not so good ways. We loved hearing those stories, so we decided to bring that episode back just in time for Halloween. Yep, we talked with April Conway,
1: Jeremy Chamberlain, Scott Beale, and Kathy Smith about teachers whose weird quirks and convictions stuck with them for years. And I think most of our haunting teachers are from way back in high school or even elementary school. Is that right, Angie?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And even our most recent teacher... Jeremy's creative writing graduate student instructor right here at the U of M. is from the very beginning of his undergrad career. So yeah, all of these teachers have been haunting our guests for quite a while.
1: Okay, so before we leave you with these haunting stories, we'll say just a bit about our guests. You'll hear first from April Conway, our Sweetland Center for Writing colleague about her very patriotic third grade
0: teacher. And then from Scott Beal, also a Sweetland colleague and now the interim director of the Lloyd Hall Scholars in Writing and the Arts program. And then from Kathy Smith, recently retired from Indiana University and Gina's mentor. We'll hear from both of those guests about high school English teachers with unconventional methods.
1: And then finally, we'll hear from Jeremy Chamberlain, our colleague from the English department writing program here at University of Michigan about the creative writing graduate student instructor who opened doors that led him right into his career as a writer and teacher. So let's have a listen. So the teacher that
2: immediately came to mind was my first third grade teacher. I was placed in her class at the beginning of the year and she was very patriotic. She always wore like red, white and blue lots of red, white, and blue flag stuff in her classroom. Every day we had to sing some type of patriotic song in addition to the Pledge of Allegiance. And I mean, I was only in third grade, but my mom had already um, programmed me to sort of question (laughs) American patriotism and stuff like that. So I would, I would not sing those songs and I would not, um, I would not do the Pledge of Allegiance and she despised me and so and and just like right away me and my little nine-year-old self and this like 40 50 something year old teacher like at odds with each other and and then there were so many third graders that they had to hire a new teacher and not surprisingly, I was moved to that new teacher's classroom. (laughs) And so she haunts me just because I think about, I mean, just like all that patriotic garbage in her um, classroom, like still haunts me to this day. And that a teacher would have a vendetta against a nine-year-old is (laughs) also pretty haunting. So yeah, that's my story.
0: Wow. That's that's a great one. So was that your first experience with like rebellion and and sort of feeling that kind of conflict with a teacher yeah probably yeah
2: because yeah I always had very good relationships with my teachers I was a good student and yeah yeah Mm -hmm. what was her name oh yeah what was her name that's it was probably no that was the next teacher I was gonna say something presidential like Mrs. Adams but that was the (laughs) second teacher I had so I can't I you know what I guess she doesn't haunt me enough that I remember
1: her name or me good. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. She must not be named. Yeah. yeah. Exactly.
3: So the teacher that I'm gonna tell you about today is my ninth grade English teacher. Her name was Mrs. Way. I think this was in North Canton, Ohio was where I was at the time. Mrs. Way um, was a crotchety old lady um, she was the kind of teacher who if you got caught chewing gum in her class she would make you stick it on the end of your nose and wear it there for the rest of the class period you know um and uh and uh, <laughs> so i didn't i didn't like her very much uh but then um one of the fir- very first things she did on our first day of class is she wrote down the uh, you know the eight forms of the verb to be on our board, right? Is are, was were be being been, and then she like said, okay, see these words, the verb to be. You cannot use any of these words in any piece of writing you do in my class for the entire year. And I said, uh, <laughs> and then she was like, now take ten minutes and you know get a piece of paper out and write write a piece that introduces you yourself to me. And I sat there thinking, um, how do I say my name is Scott without saying is? And it's just like for 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 like eight of the 10 minutes, I'm like, how do I say my name is Scott without is? And I go up to her desk afterwards, and I'm like, Mrs. Way, what you've asked is impossible. This doesn't make any sense. I can't say my name is Scott without saying is. And she didn't even verbally respond. She just kind of like smirked at me and like gave me like a little wave of the hand, like back to your desk, you know? <laughs> like, this is not my problem. Like She didn't show me without saying this is not my problem, she's like waved me back to my desk. So I went there like frustrated, head in my hands, and finally was like, I don't know if I was like, people call me Scott, my parents named me Scott. I figured out a way to get that first sentence down, you know, an active voice. Um and uh and then I and then I just started learning how to deal with it. And it was so, but I hated it. I hated it so much. It was so frustrating I was like, this is this stupidest, most arbitrary, corny rule, and it makes everything needlessly hard. Um, and, and I hated it, and I didn't like her, and uh, you know I was just kind of probably a brat in class. But, um, but I tell this story to my students now a lot, and what I, because re- what I've realized is that this is probably the single most important thing for me that, that ever happened for me as a writer, like learning for a year to have to choose more active, colorful verbs in writing like to 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 be have a sustained practice of that for a year really i think like like taught me to write you know in some ways right that um like i think i don't think i would be as as good a poet as i am if i didn't learn that i don't think i would be as good at you know, just email communication that is direct into to the point without that. Like, there's so many ways in which, and I use B verbs now, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I will have this conversation with my students, and sometimes I make them do it for like 10 minutes in class. And even after 10 minutes, they're like, yeah, that was really hard. Um, and then I tell them the story. Um, But, you know, and I pointed that, you know, be verbs are perfectly good verbs. They exist for a reason. But uh, but the practice of trying to write around them can can do wonders for your writing. So that's the way in which Mrs. Way continues to haunt me in pretty much every writing class I teach now.
1: So nothing good happened between you and Mrs. Way in that in that class. Like you left that class. Like, have you ever had a chance to thank her for that or did you just pretty much hate her until you turned into a teacher yourself?
3: So let me, yeah, let me, that's a good question. First of all, she was old then, and this is the 80s. So I'm pretty sure that the time that I could have, you know, by the time that I realized that she is a person that I owed gratitude to, I think it was for me to to go back and find her and express that gratitude. So I've never had a chance to follow up with her. Occasionally, I will think about trying to see if any of her family is around in North Canton, so I could like send them a letter or something. But I've never, I've never done anything of the sort. Um, I will say, like, it's a little bit flip for me to say I hated her because I was also, you know, a nerdy good kid who I, you know, I couldn't bring myself to really hate my teachers. She aggravated me a lot, you know. But I also, like, I also made note. So this is a trip. I was known in that class as someone who hated poetry. This is before I became a poet. Like I I did. I actively hated poetry. I thought poets were jerks, you know, like if you if you want to say that you're sad, why do you have to say the curtains are blue? Just say you're sad. You know, like uh, it didn't make sense that everything was couched and hidden behind these these barriers, you know. So I made no bones about that. And I at one point I wrote a paper about like a Robert Frost poem, the one about how the, some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice, you know, it's, I don't, I don't really love Robert Frost and I don't really love that poem, but I wrote a paper about it and I, I still have it with her comment on it, which was that for someone who hates poetry, you're pretty good at writing about it. So there was that, <laughs> that little acknowledgement, um, which I still have, you know, in, in all my old papers somewhere. So I guess that's the coda.
4: When I was in the ninth grade, I had a teacher named Miss Gelvin and Miss Gelvin at that time was ancient, but you couldn't put anything over on her. Uh, She was infamous for arranging the desks in a big U and she stood at the front with her podium and nobody was allowed up in the front unless she invited them. So when you came into the room, you had to march all the way around the back of the room to your desk. She also required us every morning to pull out three sheets of yellow paper and have them on, my, on her desk, a dictionary, and our CIMs. CIM stood for copy in ink and memorize. And essentially what that was, was uh, during the class, we took notes on our yellow sheets of paper. And then at night, we were to go home and copy them over on white notebook paper and have them ready the next morning for her to inspect before she proceeded with the next lesson. She was a character, but I probably learned more from her than I learned from any other teacher ever. When you did well, she would stand in front of the class, clap her hands and yell, Mirabile Dictu, well said. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, so so I often I often think of Miss Galvin as do many of the. I was just at a class reunion and we were talking about her. Many of us remembered her actually very fondly. What was her subject? English, excuse me, yes, it was English, and she spent a great deal of time teaching us about uh, uh what do you call them suffixes and prefixes, and how you told the difference and what they meant and how you diagram sentences and how you even, I remember she had us, we had to scan Shakespeare's, uh, uh, Shakespeare's speech about the quality of mercy is not strained, it falleth as a gentle rain upon the place beneath. This impressed me and it I never forgot the difference between gamut and gambit because of her.
0: Awesome, that's a great story. That is, I can see it, I can see the you in the classroom
1: yeah well and the the mix i just want to say as a student of kathy's that the mix of like unmitigated terror and desire to please yeah she inspires that too
4: (laughs) if i hear you talking about in your ghost stories me i'm coming for you gina
5: Thinking about teachers who haunt me, there are lots of wonderful instructors and not-so-wonderful ones over the years. I think someone I keep coming back to, especially recently, um, is an instructor I had in undergraduate. um, Michelle Kotler actually did my undergraduate work here at the University of Michigan in the early 90s, and Michelle was an MFA student, and when I applied for college after taking a gap year, I'd applied to a couple of different schools. And in the end, it was down to going to Kenyon, which is a small liberal arts college. And it was uh, coming here to University of Michigan, which is a large in-state school, but had Charles Baxter, who was a writer I deeply admired and always wanted to work with. But after a few months, my freshman year, I realized I'd made the wrong decision that I should have gone to Kenyon. (laughs) It was too big. I was a number, a UMED ID. I was in these enormous lecture halls. I couldn't find any community. And I went over Thanksgiving and I told my parents, that's it, I'm done. I made a terrible decision. I'm not going back uh, next semester. I'm trying to see if Ken will take me in the end. And my parents said, listen, we've already paid tuition this year. <laughs> Can you please just, you know, hold it out for one semester and then we'll reconvene in the spring and and talk this through. And I said, all right, I agreed to go back after the winter break. And I landed in this class with Michelle Collar, who's an MFA student, English 223, the intro to creative writing class. And he went in there with a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. I thought I was a writer. I thought I knew a lot about writing for an 18-year-old. And uh, one day after class, I was kind of grumbling and complaining about how I didn't want to have to be in this introductory class. And most people didn't care about writing, didn't take it seriously. And she said, oh, you think we're not doing enough here in this class? And I said, yeah, I I, I, I wish we were doing more. It feels like there's a lot of basic stuff. And she said, all right, how about this? I'm going to double the workload. I'm going to meet with you every other day outside of class, and she called my bluff. And so she started doing this extra work with me outside of class, reading the poems I was writing on the side, um, and really cranked up the level of rigor for me in that classroom, so suddenly it became this space where I was feeling challenged instead of just sort of sitting on the sidelines. But I think the real thing that Michelle did for me, which is the reason I ended up completing my uh, time as an undergraduate here and would later come back and teach here, is that she said, as I complained to her about the size and scope of this place, she said, well, the problem is you just haven't met your people yet. You haven't you haven't found your community. And it doesn't matter if there's 40,000 people, if you can find 14 great ones. And she said, do you know what the Hopwood Room is? And I said, no, I've never heard of it. She said, well, every Thursday, the writers get together for tea. That's open for undergrads and grad students. Everybody's welcome. I'll tell you what, meet me outside, Hopwood room next thursday i want to introduce you to some people so she took me to the Hopwood room she introduced me to some of the t- teachers she said this is my student he should study with you in the fall she introduced me to some of the instructors like um, eileen Pollock, who i'd later work with and the grad students told me about the readings at shaman drum bookstore back when we had shaman drum here in town and basically showed me an entire world that existed in this campus that i'd never seen or heard of. It was its own little liberal arts college within this this larger one, um, and I still to this day credit the fact that I graduated and didn't drop out of school with this one small kindness, or two kindnesses. One, um, the fact that she called my bluff when I was complaining and moaning about the class not being good enough for my taste, and then the fact that she showed me this community. Um, Michelle went on to found the Community Word Project in Brooklyn, which is a Writers in the School program back in the late 90s. I think she's been going at it now for 25 years or so. Every once in a while when I see her at AWP, she'll say, little Jeremy, (laughs) even though she's about five feet tall, (laughs) about six feet. And she still thinks of me as this scrawny little kid uh, who had a lot of lip and a lot of attitude in her freshman class as a MFA student teaching English 223. And Every time I teach that class, I think a lot about about her keeping me in the room, and I try to do the same for my students today to remind them that there are other things out our outside of our lives as students, and that this is a very big place, but it doesn't have to be. But that's somebody who is on my mind a lot when I'm teaching.
0: I can imagine. I mean, that is something to aspire to as a teacher for sure. <laughs> I mean, she really she really saw you, you know, in that moment, and not just saw you as as the student that you were, right, but, like, really took you up on what you needed in that moment and tried yeah. to provide it for you, which is a huge thing.
5: Yeah, and I, and I won't advocate for labor issues that the solution is to always do more work, <laughs> <laughs> obviously, but I think that her ability to to offer that space for me to, to continue my work alongside the class or beyond the class or do some experimentation with what we, beyond what we were studying was crucial. Um,
1: well... And honestly, Jeremy, it sounds like maybe the work part of it was almost the least of it. You know, it was absolutely the Hopwood room and, the, yeah. you know, like here, here are some other teachers you should know about. Yeah. And like, that's just, you know, human kindness that is yeah. kind of not part of the job, but always part of the job. You know? Right. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Reminding students that there's, there's a community, but it's, it's hard to know what to look for, how to find a yeah. community if you don't know where to start. Yeah. But, oh, she literally opened the door <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of the Hopwood room in this case. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. And what
5: funny. was what was her? Uh, was she a graduate student at the time? Yeah, she was an MFA student in poetry. I feel
1: like that's it's very it's a very cool thing that she was a graduate student instructor, because, you know, I feel like often graduate student instructors, especially new ones are like, oh, I'm not really an authority. I can't really offer you know very much to students but look what look what that one did you Mm -hmm. know more than anybody else was doing for you at that moment
0: okay that's it for this year's episode of teachers who haunt us we hope you've enjoyed these stories as much as we have
1: and to all of you our listeners we wish you a very happy halloween